Welcome to Voices of E-Learning, reflecting the people living and breathing the future of education and online learning with your Hello host, and J.W. Marshall. Welcome to another episode of Season 2 of Voices of E-Learning. I'm your host, J.W. Marshall, with Summit K-12, and joining me, uh, as, as always, is my co-host, Lena Marie Sully with Canva. We are so excited to have you on this episode of the show. Uh, our guests are really amazing. We've got Carl Brechtanis, who is the co-founder and CEO of Learn Platform, and also his associate, Dr. Mary Stiers, the director of research for Learn Platform. Lena, Carl, and Mary, how's everyone doing today? Fantastic. Yeah, thanks, well. thanks for having us. All right. This is going to be a fun conversation. This is a topic that uh, Lena and I are both very passionate about, and I know you are as well. Uh, but before we dive into the substance of today's conversation, uh, we always start by asking our guests, who are you and what do you love about what you do? And we'll start with Carl. Thanks so much, JW and Lena. Uh, excited to be on the show. Very kind. It is a, a topic we're pretty passionate about. Uh, my name is Carl Rectanis. I was a teacher and an administrator here and overseas. But Learn Platform is my fourth successful education innovation organization. We launched the company in 2014 because at the time, there was no data on what was working, what wasn't, how it was working, what was being used. And, you know, I'm sure we'll talk more about evidence. And really, our mission as an organization is to expand equitable access and outcomes for all students to the teaching and technology that works best for them. That's what I love about this work is that every day we've got a team of, you know, great, smart uh, researchers, data scientists, educators, technologists working together to equip district and state leaders, solution providers, philanthropy, policymakers to have the information and a shared fact base about what's actually happening so they can make better decisions for these students. Not for students who look like these students, but for their students that they're engaging with every day. And I mean, it just gives me goosebumps. I love doing it. I love it. And Mary, same yes. question. Who are you and what do you love about what you do? Yes. So uh, I thought about this a little bit earlier today. So I would say that I am an avid hiker is one of the things that I like to do. So I get outside a lot and I'm a researcher at heart and a learner uh, and also just a uh, sincere and collaborative team member and kind of like Carl, this kind of leads into what I love about what I do. So I have a really fantastic research team. They're very collaborative, empathetic, thoughtful, and just a fantastic all around team to work around. And also that, you know, our marketing team and customer success team is just a fantastic group of individuals. So I love coming to work with them every day. But, you know, quite honestly, what drew me to Learn Platform was our mission in really helping students to achieve and all students to achieve and really empowering education administrators to see how things are working in their context, not just taking the word of, you know, research articles out there, but really looking at their data and taking a look at uh, how things are working in their context. So that's always been really particularly motivating and empowering mission for me. So it sounds like you're just as passionate about education as we are. And so it's always exciting to share the space with others who share that same passion. So to kick off today's episode, we want to focus a little bit on what we're seeing in the space from a perspective of the rise of technology and what we've seen over the course of the pandemic. So I'd love to kind of dive in a little bit with you both and for you to kind of tell us what you guys are seeing in the, you know, in the education space, what kinds of implications 
you are seeing in the teaching and learning space? Absolutely. Mary, maybe I'll go first and you can dig in. I think the last two years have been tough, right? For anyone, for everyone, but anyone working in the field of education, whether they're a solution provider, whether they're a practitioner, an educator. And throughout this, I mean, if there's one sort of takeaway that sticks out as we look back over the last two years is that the time has sort of taught us there's no going back, right? That, that where we've come, tech-enabled learning is here to stay. School districts right now, our data shows that school districts on average are accessing more than 1,400 different ed tech tools every month. That's in every school number. That number has persisted even after, you know, return to in-person schooling, you know, proof that this is not sort of going away. Those traditional things, I, I like you have, uh, maybe longer than you, have worked in this uh, space for decades. And traditional barriers like broadband access or devices, you know, the traditional digital divide is not wholly, but primarily addressed. Right. We've, we've really leaned into that. Three years ago, if you were one to one, that was special. Now that is, you know, requisite. So it's really time. I think what we're seeing is it's time to modernize learning, right? By building capacity, by increasing evidence of what's working and informing decision making, by addressing sort of these clear and persistent digital learning equity gaps. Those are the things that we're seeing sort of people understand and come around no matter what side of the market you're engaging with. Mary, I, I don't know if you've got other trends or things that make sense that you wanted to highlight. No, I think you captured that well, Carl. Perfect. Then I'll, I'll jump in with the next question. And first, I want to say kudos to you for building this platform. Uh, this is something I've actually been talking about for years, even before the pandemic. That was a growing issue for districts, that they have more programs then they have time in the day to use or they have time in the day to do professional development on. Part of it is my fault. I started out in ed tech in the early 2000s with a company called Study Island. We were one of the first uh, kind of state-by-state -state online learning programs and, and there was no competition really back then. There wasn't a lot. And so uh, we take some of the blame. I left there in uh, 2011 and went into consulting for all these new ed tech startups at the, the turn of that decade that kind of saw what we did and others and said, hey, this is uh, an emerging market that can really help enhance the student learning experience, enhance the teaching experience, all the great things you know that we needed in education at the time. And it was a slow build at first, but really the last three, four or five years, and then the, the pandemic has accelerated. Uh, the number of ed tech companies is just very saturated. And so uh, part of why we're doing this episode and a series on this uh, topic, we're calling it the great audit. And we really feel like that's where districts are at coming out of the pandemic. They also got a lot of free things that are not free anymore. And how do they make the decisions? Where do they start on what do we keep using? What do we discontinue? Uh, because there's only so much time of the day. And so there's so many good products out there, but I always say that it, there's no time for good products. You have to use great products and you have to use software and technology that is 
making a noticeable impact. If you're not telling other people about how great it is, then it's probably not worth your time because there are other programs and other technologies out there that are that great that people, you know, swear by them. But I think the market's been conditioned over a decade of just adding one more here, one more there that they're like, well, it's just easier to keep what we have. We don't want to upset the apple cart. And, and I think with that turning point, so just a, a quick diatribe on thank you for doing what you're doing and for having the foresight in 2014 to start building this. Uh, but I would imagine things have really taken off for you in the last couple of years and, and even right now this year, um, because this is a growing problem that I think districts are finally starting to recognize and, and address. So all of that to say, you mentioned uh, evidence-based, which has always been a thing to differing levels. How does the, the evidence base play into today's situation with all of the different options that schools and districts have and could have to, to put it in the right context? Because I think in the past, it's either not valued enough or overvalued. And how do we find that Goldilocks you know, position of the right research-based, the right evidence-based, the right, almost more than the one research report, which you used to see, but the ongoing you know, efficacy yeah. and the ongoing growth of a company because their research five years ago is pretty irrelevant for a good ed tech company because they're not doing the same things the same way that they were five years ago. So that's a big, long intro to talk about evidence base and where it was, where it is now, and where it's going. I couldn't agree with you more, JW. So I've also been working in education my entire career. I actually became a CFO for schools because I felt like the back office was sort of screwing up what we were trying to do in the classroom. And I wanted to understand, there seemed like there should be a better way, right? And what I've seen, and you're correct, there have been changes, but ultimately the challenges we're talking about are similar challenges, but they've intensified greatly. They really fall into two areas, right? And we see them as opportunities, uh, frankly. The first is having the data needed to make the right decisions at the right time. And we can call that evidence, right? And, and Dr. Styers will share, I think, more about, you know, levels and types of evidence and how that's being, you know, improved and, and implemented into the system right now through Every Student Succeeds Act and, and through solution providers and practitioners. But the second piece that's always been the challenge is, is being able to distribute and share those decisions, share that evidence for broader adoption in what is traditionally a decentralized system, right? We want our teachers to make the best decisions for my students, but do they have the evidence? Do they have the visibility? Like, how do you support that? We can call that efficiency, right? So if you've got evidence, but no efficiency, that's the ivory tower, right? That's, you keep it all in a box up, up there. If you've got high efficiency with no evidence, you're probably very rapidly moving towards the wrong direction, right? Uh, potentially in the wrong direction. So you need sort of both. And that's, that really undergirds how we approach all of our work at Learn Platform, whether it's our you know, ed tech effectiveness system, the districts and states serving now over 7 million students use to understand their own evidence and to activate you know, what's working to manage all their contracts, to vet for student data privacy, cybersecurity, to, to even streamline, you know, communication to parents about which of these tools are approved and not, or, you know, states that are using it to uh, analyze, you know, which tools are working for which students to run rapid cycle evaluations, or now solution providers 
with evidence as a service or a fractional third-party evaluation at a fraction of the traditional costs. One of the reasons that we'll, we're seeing that sort of intensify, I think, is not just because of COVID and, and what's been an acceleration towards tech-enabled learning, but the Every Student Succeeds Act sort of changes that paradigm from the traditional r- randomized control trial uh, that you know Dr. Stiers is, was the bread and butter of, of education research for uh, the gold standard, the only thing that counted. Uh, maybe you could share a little bit about the Every Student Succeeds Act and sort of the levels of evidence that JW mentioned. Certainly. So happy to share that. So ESSA did provide guidance back in 2016, actually about these different levels of evidence that districts should consider when looking and implementing different ed tech products into their districts. So you have four levels of evidence and actually level four is the bottom or foundational level of evidence. And that's a logic model. So an easy way to think of a logic model is it helps to set the stage for what a product should be able to do in your classrooms. So who it's intended for, what are the key components or key activities that students or teachers should be doing as part of this product? And then if that's implemented correctly or used appropriately, what are the expected outcomes on students? So, you know, how does that progress from students becoming engaged and interested in a content area and topic into them actually having higher achievement scores? So it kind of outlines what's the expected expected pathway for this program. So that's a logic model, and that's kind of the foundational evidence. There's not any kind of study conducted on a specific program, but it's this kind of foundational underlying knowledge. Then you move into an ESSA level three study, which is essentially a correlative study. And we always say correlation doesn't equal causation uh, because you're looking at the relationship between two things, right? So does greater usage of a literacy program relate to higher literacy achievement outcomes, right? So if students spend more time in the program, is there a relationship between greater time and student achievement? So it's this relationship, but we can't say that it causes that, that the program causes this higher achievement. Once you move into an ESSA level one or two study, so Carl alluded to that with the randomized control trials and the quasi-experimental designs, you're really comparing a group of students who receive the intervention to a group of students who don't receive the intervention. So saying two students who receive this product actually outperform students who don't. And so it's a really key way and key indicator of whether the program's impact. So is the program really impacting student achievement outcomes? And you can attribute that directly to the program. And so you're able to do that with these quasi-experimental designs and randomized control trials, which is a really big way of just saying whether or not you're randomly assigning students to one group or another. So if you're kind of tossing a coin up in the air and saying students are going to receive the product or not, or they are going to just be you know, selected by the school, there's two different ways of doing that. So The ideal standard in the past was that we have to randomly assign students to receive it or not receive it. So that's a randomized control trial. Well, the thing is that districts and schools don't like that, right? They don't like to randomly give a program to one group of students and another. It's also very time intensive, resource intensive, and it's just not practical. That's not what happens in the real world. And so we've seen that these quasi-experimental designs are really the highest level of evidence that's really needed to help drive decisions. But certainly these earlier levels of evidence are important as well. And one of the things that I'll quickly mention too, and this kind of builds off of what Carl was just sharing, is that context really matters. So that's something we're seeing over and over and over again. Uh, When you look at all of these different studies that have been conducted by providers, those took years Right, but they were conducted in limited settings. And even IES and what works clearinghouse has said, 
look at studies that are similar to your context, but the reality is you can't. They're not going to match every single context. And so the beauty of Learn Platform really is that we're helping districts to see how is it working in your context. Let's help you to look at correlative studies in your context. Let's help you to look at quasi-experimental studies in your context to see what the evidence looks like for you. I'll just add to that too, just to give some context around Mary's. So there's these four levels that ESSA, you know, this is a market that's been driven by regulate, regulation for years, right? The No Child Left Behind Act, et cetera. ESSA replaced that and created this regulatory on-ramp to build evidence. All of the stimulus funding requires evidence-based interventions. And so what we're seeing is both districts and solution providers see, oh, I don't have to run a randomized control trial. I can run, you know, I could just having a logic model counts in my first few years, but then I can run these lower costs, higher speed, right? These can happen in weeks instead of months and years and do it in different contexts. So uh, while school districts last year ran over 400 different rapid cycle evaluations using Learn Platform, you know, net savings of about $45 million compared to traditional research. We've now actually activated that same technology and some of the tools for our research team to work with solution providers to activate those that type of evidence base and help create that shared fact base at a fraction of the cost that has been available in the past. And one quick thing I'll add on to that. Sorry, just adding on to Carl here too. But I think too, the benefit of these rapid cycle evaluations is because they happen so quickly, you know, districts can then go back to providers and saying, it's working really well with these groups of students, but it's not working so well with these groups of students. How can we work together to make improvements? And so it, it kind of fosters that collaborative relationship and evidence sharing across those two groups too. And I guess just to kind of expand on that, can you explain a little bit for those people who may not have heard of a rapid cycle evaluation, can you explain a little bit about what a rapid cycle evaluation is and kind of give a little bit of insight there? Certainly. So I'll, I'll take that one. So I did plenty of evaluations, traditional evaluations over the years. And, and the way those worked was it took years to do a curriculum evaluation. So it would take 18 months quite often. We spent a lot of time on recruitment of schools, you know, just months on that, months on data collection and months on reporting and analysis. Essentially a rapid cycle evaluation consolidates that all down to weeks. And so the way that we're able to do that is really to have an automated process for reporting and data collection, also using historical data so we're working with districts and using data that's specific to their context, working with providers in, in, you know, enrolling or getting their districts to come on board and help with these studies so we can leverage historical data to see how a product has worked in their context without having to you know, spend all of this money and resources and time trying to find the perfect study. We're doing studies that are contextually situated in districts based on their data. You know, if I could share, sometimes it's helpful to have an example, right? So mid-sized school district in Utah, you know, a couple of years ago was an example that comes up quite a bit. Over the Christmas break, over the winter holidays, district office, their leader for this work, decided to analyze their math programs doing using first semester data, analyze usage, student achievement, cost, et cetera, and ran it like 
Thursday before New Year's, you, you know, over the course of a couple hours, ran multiple studies based on the data they had. And it, the reason he ran it a couple of times is because he said when he looked at it, he found that they were having an outsized positive effect for their English language learners with particular math intervention. They were not having the same effect for their highest achieving students. It's positive, but not the same. And as you can imagine, if you think about digital learning equity opportunities, the fact is they came back ahead of budget season, ahead of the second semester, shared the data with their uh, leadership team, changed how they were implementing for the second semester to focus that particular intervention in schools that had high populations of English language learners, looked at alternative interventions for their highest achieving students, and drove a little more PD in professional development in, in that direction. So that's what we mean by, you, you know, traditionally, that would have been three years later getting a report and thinking about kids that look like those kids with an intervention that has changed, you know, over that three years versus December analysis, January implementation supporting kids in this grade right now. And a quick follow-up question to that. I think you've pretty well addressed the challenges of not doing this better before or time, right? A three-year study and then cost, I'm sure is not cheap. And, and you've addressed those. Are there any other challenges that have held districts back from, from doing this kind of research? And one that maybe comes to mind is districts might not actually want to know the results of the data. They just want to kind of keep their head in the sand and say, well, we like this program and we think it works. We feel good about it. So we'll just keep going with it. Maybe you could address that misconception or a real you know, fear and any other uh, reasons why you know, maybe districts haven't fully embraced this. Uh, another one that comes to mind is just kind of the overwhelming big data and not being able to make sense of it. Talk to those concerns and, and how those are being addressed today different than maybe they would have been in a, a decade ago. Yeah, sure. So like we said earlier, the school districts are accessing over 1,400 different ed tech products every month. They've come to realize like a, a shareable worksheet or a couple surveys a year is not enough to track manually what's going on. And quite frankly, uh, as an educator, you know, when I was teaching or in the classroom, like I didn't expect to have the same level of consumer level sort of technology to leverage in my classroom, right? But now we can't, right? And so, for example, our uh, Learn platform offers an inventory dashboard for free for any school district in the US to turn on. It takes about 20 minutes through browser extensions and their mobile device management system to activate. And over, you know, by the end of the week, they can see which of 10,000 different EdTech products is being accessed, how often by, you know, how many students and teachers, et cetera. That is game changing. I mean, that would be months previously. So once you have that, then there's this opportunity to build capacity. You mentioned, for example, return on investment. I mean, I, I talked to a district just a couple months ago that said, hey, we found out that I'm paying for, you know, I'm paying for a bunch of video conference licenses here. I'm paying for a bunch here. I'm paying for a bunch here. And all my teachers are using Google Meets and a couple of people are using Zoom. And so I can, I can right size my licenses to do that correctly. Ultimately, you know, both solution providers and educators, we, we come from a, a 
the grounding that everybody wants kids to learn right at the heart of it. And, and that is reinforced every time I engage with a solution provider that says, hey, we can see our own information, what, who are, who's using you know, our stuff, but we can't see if they're also using you know, Khan Academy or what the context of you know, in which they're implementing. There's, it's very opaque for us. So if you can help us get understanding of what, not just what else is going on, but how teachers feel about our work through, you know, teacher feedback and pilots or these other data points, that's really valuable. Like we want that, even though we know, you know, we've all been ghosted by the, we did a pilot and we never heard and we, you know, or we're heading into renewal and we don't know what's going to happen. But on the educator side, exactly the same. It's not that people aren't motivated to figure out what's working for this individual student or these groups of students or my kids and my contacts. It's that they haven't had the equipment or the tools and technology to do it in time to inform decisions. And now they're seeing, you know, they're prioritizing and recognizing that they're encouraged to prioritize that because it's actually how they comply with ESSA. Right. It's how they show proof for, you know, using stimulus dollars uh, or federal program dollars. What we're seeing is actually what has traditionally been this sort of tension, uh, a low trust relationship between providers and districts is actually an opportunity now to, to start to build that type of partnership that every educator and provider knows they have with some customers that we're on the same page, we have a shared fact base, we're all working towards the same goal. And so when we have this sort of level playing field in terms of what counts for evidence and how we're gonna share that and what our goals are together, it's game changing for building that evidence and eliminating that type of tension, JW, that you mentioned. Yeah, and and building it from the inside out, from the district, not just from the third-party provider doing their quote unquote, independent research, which is not a bad thing, but, and they need to check the box because it's the chicken and the egg, right? They can't work in the district until they have some research at some level. But I love the idea of of having the research in-house with the districts because, hey, they can make the best decisions. And also, I love that they can make those decisions throughout the year continuously and not just a once a year evaluation, because by the time they get the scores and then they run the, the evaluation, it's kind of too late to then go to market and look for a replacement if they're not happy. You're kind of stuck for another year when you know you don't have the best solution. So it's exciting to, to see that happening more in real time. And, and hopefully that makes a big impact in a lot of uh, school districts that can finally you know optimize right what's being used and not used. That's the foundation. But just because you use something and you see some results doesn't mean it's still the best thing. I liken it to if you go to the gym every day and do something, you're probably going to get in a little better shape. But if you have you know, a plan or some research behind your workouts, you're going to get better results. And so it's exciting to see us hopefully leapfrogging forward from, from nothing to something to something really optimized for districts moving forward. Um, JW, I'd love to add this. What you just outlined is exactly why. Dr. Styers, our product team working with districts and states and providers is launching something called Impact Ready. Impact Ready is a certification process and a badge that any solution provider can earn by having a logic model that complies with the SSA, sharing their data privacy agreements with us or anybody else, but they need to share it so we can communicate it. 
And three, being willing to share usage data for the purposes of research, just signaling that they can and will do that. Very low bar. But the reason we're launching this is because districts and states have told us, Carl, we got so many tech tools, we got so many products. If we could just get a signal of what has some evidence based and you, you know that they have some that they have a data privacy agreement, that would save us a ton of time. It would help us differentiate. And so this is a, a great opportunity to get everybody on the same page because now uh, it, it doesn't mean you have to have these uh, the types of moderate, promising, strong you know evidence, the type of studies that I know Mary can talk about. Uh, give examples of folks who have gone from impact ready into running those studies, but that you're ready to do that if a district wants to do that together. You comply with ESSA, but you are ready to go deeper together. We've got a wait list already since we've launched it. We're really excited about that, but that's exactly why is because it really helps the whole market get a better understanding of what's happening. And I think, I guess, kind of transitioning a bit, but talking about, you mentioned earlier about modernize the learning environment. So how can districts, states, and solution providers basically work together to modernize the learning environments? We've been seeing, obviously, for a long time that a teacher can basically pick and choose whatever they want. But then there's also another level to even like the adoption process and how the adoption process is different from district to district. And data privacy agreements are also different from district to district, from state to state. So what is a way that we can kind of work together, I guess, to kind of modernize that. Because right now you can pick and choose, you can look at data, but there's also this other element that you even mentioned earlier, which is the professional development, which we've mentioned on other things is sometimes it's not just that the product isn't working. It's the way that the teachers are using the product. And that's also another level that I think districts forget about. I think they forget about the training in general. And when you forget about the training, then your output will never match the input. Like it just, it just will vary and the data will be very skewed because a person may be going in, let's say you're using something even like Google Meet, you're using Google Meet regularly, but there's all these other other extra features. You could do whiteboarding, you could do all these like, you know, translations and like all kinds of extra things. But if you're not using it correctly in the way that it's meant to be then also your data becomes skewed too. So what is the best approach, I guess, for how we can kind of work together to modernize that experience more effectively for districts and states and solution providers? Mary, I know you had a conversation with a county just recently, a uh, county office about something uh, this work. Yes, certainly. So they were very interested in figuring out, you know, these very questions that you were asking about. And so kind of trying to figure out what are the key parts of implementing this program and identifying that actually asked me if we could help them build logic models for a product and had to have a conversation with them about, no, well, actually, that's something that the provider should do and provide to you so that you're knowledgeable about what are the key pieces that you need to implement. But it's something that, uh, you know, we're starting to hear about from both sides of the market, logic models and the benefits of just kind of this evident sharing. But back to your question about this, you know, the, the implementation being so key. Yes, it's so important to measure. Uh, I think, you know, there's lots of ways to do that. And there's ways that you can kind of help with the efficiency aspect of it that Carl was uh, speaking to. So you can certainly collect, you know, feedback from teachers on how the product is being implemented, whether they're even participating in PD, how much time they've spent in PD, look at how it's being used in classrooms, because quite honestly, a product is not going to be effective if students aren't using it. 
And so that's one thing that we help uh, districts to uncover through our platform is to look at educator feedback and collecting that on the product, but also looking at usage data for the product. Because, you know, as I noted, you can have a product that's out there for 800 students and only 10 are using it. Well, that's the problem. You wouldn't expect those impacts. And so that's one of the benefits, I think, of rapid cycle evaluation is you can see very quickly that it's not being implemented effectively. So you wouldn't expect those results go back and make changes and say, hey, you need to spend a lot more time on this in your classroom and then run it again and see if it if it can be more effective, JW, to your point, uh, or maybe it's not working for your district and you need to consider other options, but certainly running the cycle a few times to see uh, if you can make improvements to help your students. Yeah, and earlier I mentioned that the districts may not want to know the answers to the effectiveness. Obviously, the third-party providers sometimes don't necessarily want to know for fear that maybe it's not working as planned, but maybe you could help debunk this myth that the research is either good or bad. Either you pass the test, it worked, and you don't have to think about it again, or you know what, there wasn't the efficacy and the company is going to go out of business. That's just a very black and white approach that, that hopefully we've evolved past, you know, if it doesn't work, why didn't it work? How can we improve it? Let's, you know, take that information and use it. And if it did work, why did it work? How do we keep improving on what's worked. Is that a shift that we've seen in recent years or, or just now, or is that a shift that's still kind of coming around the corner? I think we're seeing that for educators and solution providers and a, and a recognition. I would say, you know, in the bigger world outside of our market, the fact is media doesn't do nuance really well. You know, you're with us or you're against us. You're good or you're bad over the last few years. I think we've seen a polarization there. But the reality is this type of impact, I mean, the, the nuance, that's what's beautiful about starting with that logic model. What Mary just described was, and, and what Lena just outlined, if you've got a logic model for how Google Meet should be used, and if you use it this way, you will get these types of, you can expect these type of near-term and longer-term outcomes. We're on the same page. We can link now. We can do implement that and find that, you know, it turns out that in this context in a large urban district that's gone hybrid or, you know, a remote district that is fully virtual or in this situation for these students, that's the opportunity that we have right now to understand under that logic model we can really replicate a lot of these studies so that you can, whether you are an educator or a solution provider, say, you know, in this situation, here's where we're having the most impact. And quite frankly, JW, what we've seen is with, as we talk to solution providers, especially in that early stage, you know, if you ask them, do you sell to districts or individual teachers? Do you use a freemium model or do you, you know, go to states and the higher ed? The fact is they have to make those decisions with very little data. Now they can run multiple and say, actually, we're better in districts with high free and reduced lunch that have this aspects and, and these, you know, criteria if you run these. And so I think we're getting there. But we're definitely on the front edge of the type of research and development infrastructure that that you know the whole market needs. I, I would agree with that. We're you know we always say we're not about picking winners and losers. And again, back to this whole idea that context matters. And so because it matters, there's all different types of contexts out there. So you really can't base things on a single study or a set of studies because there's just so many different contexts you have to see what works in all these different places, and then use that data to make improvements. And so, you know, I, I think 
all products that I hesitate to say all products, but I would say the vast majority of products out there have promise. Certainly, I would say if they listen to their stakeholders and, and figure out what their needs are and how to make improvements. And, you know, we're always happy to work with both groups and both sides, you know, providers and educators to help them identify improvements that could be made on both sides. So we try to kind of be the bridge there as well. I think that's important work to be able to, you had mentioned going, you know, how, how is it being delivered? What does it look like in classrooms? I think that knowing from the tech companies that I've worked with, and then also being in the classroom and also being the person who leads the implementations at the district level, that that's often tricky. And that's like the key component that we often miss as ed tech providers is what is it looking like in the classroom? Because you can look at the, they have an 800 seat license, only 10 people are using it. You reach out to the teacher and they're like, oh, you know, whatever. And then you, you see, you know, an outlier of someone who may be using it all the time. And you're trying to understand what is it that, why are they using it? And so I think the the missed opportunity oftentimes for like us as ed tech companies, we just can't, we can't see that. We can't see the data of what's going on in the classrooms. And the most powerful piece is when you do go and do a site visit, even if they know you're coming, every single classroom will use it differently and every single person will do it differently. You know, the, the way that they're prescribing, the way that they're doing it, it's always just an interesting experience. So I think it's nice to also see that you guys are providing that piece because I know JW and myself, we can't speak to that. We try to, we try to get as much, you know, as we can in with the districts and kind of see what's going on. But it's much easier when someone's on the ground and being able to kind of experience that a bit. There's a feature on our system, actually, in, in one case where you can just highlight, okay, these are the people who are the highest use, request their feedback. What, you know, what do you, why do you use it a lot? Like, what are you, what's motivating you? And that being able to do that in, you know, 3% of the time that it would normally take you to engage is just so empowering, especially if you can do it in September or October, right? As opposed to, you know, uh, April or May. I think one of the things that we're really excited and to your point, Lena, around sharing that information and getting it out into the world is a project that we've been working on with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, districts and solution providers called Universal Evidence Report, uh, UER. And Dr. Steyer shared earlier the that traditional research is bespoke. It is. It was. It turned into 98-page documents or a journal brief that, quite frankly, like nobody reads, or maybe one line in a marketing doc, right? But you know, the Universal Evidence Report will be open source. It's going to be shared this spring. We've been working with researchers and a lot of others. Anybody can use it. Think of it almost like the tax form for evaluation. Every year, we all have different family and financial situations, but we boil it down to a set of forms that are computer readable and translate that. This universal evidence report is like a cover sheet on any evaluation, whether we run it, it's run by uh, you know, a solution provider, a district that's evaluated a tool, but it highlights what was the intervention, the core components, the context it was implemented, the findings and how it aligns with things like the ESSA standards or what works clearinghouse or others, all in a computer readable format. You know, we will be sharing those, but also they'll be able to share those with each other. The opportunity to activate that universal evidence report across the market is just one more set of tools 
to help share what's working and to make searchable and computer readable evidence that can help understand, okay, let me see districts that look like me that have implemented this solution. What happened? You know, not just all districts, but the ones that look like me and how that can work. So we're very excited about that additional sort of steps in these early stages really of, of leaning in on evidence and being able to be, you know, nuanced JW as, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah, and the nuance is, it's so critical for education because it's all nuanced. There is no black and white. Every student, it learns differently. Every student comes to a different place. And I think, again, that's the most exciting thing about the future of education. We talk about it all the time is there's not a one size fits all. And finally, technology has a seat at the core of the table and it's not a supplement. And it's not the silver bullet that is replacing teachers by any means, but enhancing that student learning experience where every student can get more access and more equity in what they're learning and how they're learning it and seeing, you know, mirrors of themselves in the content and windows into others. It's just an exciting time. Um, so on that theme of, of equity, talk to us about the importance of this research. You were kind of alluding it to it in your last answer, but can this really be a game changer to really help not just bring equality and more devices to students, which we've done more than ever in the last two years by necessity. We still have a little ways to go, but we'll hopefully keep pushing on that. But now the next level of, of real equity for all of our students to put them each individually in the best position to succeed. Yeah, the, the Dr. Cyrus can talk about impact. I'll say you mentioned engagement. I mean, the digital learning equity gap was already existed before COVID, right? There was a there was a gap. We knew that uh, during COVID, it was a K-shaped recovery. It actually doubled, right? Engagement. You've got access. You mentioned broadband devices. Access is one thing. Then you've got engagement. How much are people using that? And engagement is a leading indicator on learning and outcomes. And that's the work that Dr. Styers and our team are working on together. But what we have found is that engagement gap is massive and it's persisted. We actually uh, worked with a number of philanthropies, AWS and others, to publish call, something called the National EdTech Equity Dashboard. And you can look and see what the EdTech engagement gap is over the last six months by week. Uh, across districts, comparing those that are more affluent to other districts or districts that have different uh, demographic you know, populations with high populations of Black, Latinx students, English language learners compared to uh, their peers, and the gap persists. So A, first challenge, understanding you've got a problem, right? And so I think we're starting to see that and activate it. But if engagement is one thing, it's a leading indicator of learning. And Mary, I mean, I think the work that the type of covariate analysis, the student group level analysis that you and the team are able to equip districts and solution pro providers to do is just, you know, like game changing. No, certainly. So, uh, you know, Carl mentioned impact. So that's, I'm not sure we mentioned that before, actually, but that's our rapid cycle evaluation tool, which just started with that. Uh, it actually stands for Integrated Metrics Producing Analytics on Classroom Technologies. So it's a mouthful there. That's why we shorten it, but this is the <clears> same uh, thing there. But the nice thing about impact is it 
helps you to look at, you know, this rapid cycle and out, uh, rapid cycle evaluation report, excuse me, looking at overall effects. So how impactful is this program across all of your students, but also how impactful is it for different student subgroups? So is it working equally as well for my students that are on free and reduced price lunch to those who are not on free and reduced price lunch? Is it working equally as well for students in different genders and different races and ethnicities? And if it's not, you can identify that uh, in this impact analysis and quickly take action. So that's one of the real benefits, I think, of impact is that we do encourage districts to look at how it's working, you know, for their different student subgroups. So again, you know, context matters, but also it, mm -hmm. it matters and works differently for different student subgroups. So we encourage looking at that data as well. I love it. I think we've covered all the E's today. Efficient, effective, engaging, equity. This is really great stuff. And I wish we could keep going, but we're out of time uh, for this episode. But certainly we'll have both of you back on the show later this year to, to give us updates. Carl and Mary, thank you so much for joining today's episode. Thank you. Thank you. I give uh, Margaret Scale our patented <laughs> A+. Plus. We're, uh, we love the show and thanks for uh, hosting us. For those of you who are listening on the podcast episode, Carl just put up a photo of himself in his business suit with two thumbs up and an A plus next to him. So just so you can have the visual while we're all smiling um, with this visual behind Carl. So we would just want to thank both Carl and Mary for joining us for this episode of the Voices of E-Learning. All the notes that we've talked about, all the um, big evidence-based things will be tied up in the episode notes. So make sure to check that out as well. And be sure to follow us on any of your streaming services and of course on the MarketScale website. And as always, just keep learning. Mm -hmm.